Welcome to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast, the podcast for serious soccer players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their soccer careers. And now, here's your host, Matt Langoni. Welcome to another episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Today I'll be joined by New England Soccer Journal contributor and longtime soccer reporter, Frank DeLapa. Frank, thanks so much for being here in studio. Good, Matt. Great to be with you. Awesome. We got a World Cup right around the corner here, the Women's World Cup, and we're going we're gonna to dive into that, kind of do a preview of the event and discuss the local angles with the roster. But we wanted to start off with, with some sad news earlier this month. A man, a, a, a man well-known in New England in soccer circles and somebody you knew personally and dealt with, John Berylson, passed away in a, a tragic car accident earlier in the month of July 4th. We just wanted to remember him and kind of pay our respects to, to his life and what he meant to the soccer world. And can you just give us a, some perspective on what he was like as a person and what he meant to the, the soccer community just here and abroad? Yeah, man. John Barrelson was one of the most respected owners in British football in with the Millwall FC. But he was from Wellesley and moved over and took over the club in 2006 and just turned that into a really strong team on the field and solid off the field. It was a team that didn't have a great reputation, this and that, and John really turned it around. He's totally missed over there, and he'll be missed on this side too. Certainly was a great guy to talk to, knew a lot about British football. It was a great interview, just a, a really good person, and the, the tributes are pouring in on the other side of the Atlantic, and he sh- sure deserves to be recognized for what he did on this side too. Yeah, as someone who who had never met the man and ha- hadn't come across him at all, just in in the obituaries that I've read and the in the in the tributes that I'm reading right now, he he seemed like he was just an interesting guy, just a, a well versed in a lot of areas and a, kind of a brilliant man and a brilliant businessman. And we talked a little bit about him off the air before we go on, but how would you kind of sum up his his personality and how he was able to achieve the status he was and saw so- he had in soccer? Yeah, I think he was he had a lot of integrity, and he went over there and stood for something, and that's what that club needed, was somebody to also put their finances and everything else in order, and John had it all. He didn't have a a ton of soccer background going in over there, but he was really a fast learner, quick study, all that stuff, and turned it into, he, he became like a bit of an encyclopedia on the game over there. He knew everything about, just about every player at the top levels, probably the lower levels too, because they had to, Millwall has to kind of cultivate and get players from other smaller clubs, this and that, and be really resourceful. And he was that. And he'd always hire really good managers, not high-profile guys. Nobody ever heard of was a manager for Millwall, but these guys are really competent, they're resourceful, they're resilient, and uh, they'd come up with stuff. So between between his, uh, I guess, common sense or whatever, your good sense, and the manager's sort of inside, they would have really good teams. Not enough to challenge the Man Cities or anything like that. They never wanted to do that, really. But there's 17 professional clubs in, in London alone, right? So Millwall's one of them. They're kind of right in the middle. So they could be at the premier level. They used to be when it was called the first division. Or they could be in the second division, which is now the league championship. Or they could go much lower. There's a, Some of those clubs are much lower. You know, they're in London. They're professional, but they're struggling. Millwall was able to stay that level, league championship, which is considered, by the way, maybe the sixth best league in the world. 
it's there's high stakes there. There's high money and there's really good players. You got national team players from all over. Everybody wants to play there because it's a stepping stone to the Premiership as well. And uh, so yeah, I guess that was. I just, I, it was kind of like, he was a really great guy because for a reporter to talk to, because he had a ton of knowledge and uh, was willing to share it and had a really good perspective, good sense of humor, all that. Well, he was obviously a, a great man by not just in what you're saying and the, the tributes we've read. So we wanted to make sure we paid our respects to his life and what he meant. And obviously thoughts are with his loved ones and, and his family members. We'd like to turn the attention now to the, the Women's World Cup, the 2023 Women's World Cup, which starts on July 20th, just days away right now. The U.S. opens up on Friday, July 21st. Obviously one of the favorites in the tournament again w- with a loaded roster. What are you looking to see from the U.S. team in the Women's World Cup? And it's kind of cra- it's in- incredible that we just had a Men's World Cup in December, and now we have another World Cup right now. It's, it's, it's great for, for soccer fans. But what do you... Looking forward to seeing from the U.S. team in this World Cup. Yeah, man, I think the, the rhythms are sort of off because that, that World Cup just ended. Now we're going to jump into another one. It's also being played in Australia and New Zealand. So the time zones and the whole timing trying to watch these games is going to be tough. So I think it'll be a little bit hard to get into. But we'll, <clears throat> once the tournament gets going, elimination rounds, the, the things will get going. The U.S. has it pretty easy, even though they're saying that they're in a really tough group. But that's kind of a relative thing. Right. I don't think it's that tough a group for the U.S. They'll get one or two tests along the way, which is what they're going to need. They need to get tested before they get into the elimination rounds when they do play a couple teams that are pretty good. It's a 32-team field, so if you do the math, you can figure out that there's some teams that probably don't belong. The U.S. opened up last year against Thailand in kind of an infamous 13-0 win. Right, so this year they open against Vietnam. So you're thinking, well, it could be something like that. But from what I'm seeing, Vietnam's actually better than Thailand. So, <laughs> so it could be a closer game. Yeah, we had we had you on Frank last fall to to preview the the men's World Cup. And how many uh, how many World Cups have you covered now? Okay, I think it's seven and counting plus two women's. Uh, so. Wow. So I mean, you're, you've done a lot of these. You've been around a lot of these. And, and you mentioned the 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 time changes there what are we looking at for game times here are we going to see like 10 10 p.m start times for these or what it's going to be not it's not as ideal for fans right that we're, we're maybe we got from the men's world cup yeah not at all 10 o'clock would be good the first two u.s games happen to be at 9 p.m yeah uh, our time eastern time so that's good but then the third game in the first round is like at 3 a.m so <sighs> we might not get Man. get high numbers for right that one. Not so bad for you and I. I mean, I'm a night owl anyway, so I'll, I mean, if I get to bed at 1 a.m., that's a good night sometimes. So I'll, I'll be watching those games, but it is it is a bummer when some of these games just aren't at that ideal time. I, I really love it when you get wake up and you get like a morning game at like 11 a.m. or something, but you know, we're not going to get those. With the U.S., I mean, obviously, they're, they're a clear favorite in the tournament. They've been the best national team in, in the world for how many, how many, what, what are they, two, two straight World Cups they've won? Is right. Two, yeah. So two. going for the three-peat, who challenges them? Who are, the, who are the nations that can put up a fight against them this year? Well, England's the number one. They're the, they're the number favorite to be number two, however you put that. U.S. odds are really good. England's odds are like, they're double as good as, as England's odds. So that's really the only challenger that I see. But realistically, all the Western European teams can give the U.S. a battle. Nobody else can. Maybe Australia. 
playing at home. But that wouldn't happen until probably the final yeah. or so. So the U.S., you know, it's the U.S. against Western Europe, basically. <laughs> what do you think that does for a mindset? I mean, you've, you've talked to a ton of players over the years and managers and, and people affiliated with, with the national team. And being in that favorite spot and going into a tournament, being the team that everyone looks at as, as the heavy favorite and you should handle every everybody who stands in your way. What do you think that does to the players? What do you think their mindset is going in? I know you just did a story for our magazine on Christy Muse, who's a member of the, a local player, member of the national team. So you've talked to these players. What, what do you think their mentality is going into this World Cup? Yeah, I think it's a way the U.S. has always been. I think they're okay with it. Look, they haven't, U.S. hasn't lost a game in the World Cup since 2011, so that's a while. They're used to winning. They're used to having the target on their backs and all that stuff. Look, the U.S. basically jump-started women's soccer whenever that was in the 80s, and a lot of it happened here in Boston, actually. So, 91, they win it, and they've always been ranked number one or two at the lowest. I don't mm. think they've ever been ranked. So, they haven't won every one, but they've won four of them out of eight. Okay, they're expected to win three, three-peat here. That would be a first. So, yeah, I think they're okay with it. But, look, it's a bit of a new team, so there's some transition there. Uh, I don't think they lack for confidence, but, you know, they do still have something to prove. Why do you think it is that the women's game here has become so dominant and our men's national team is still playing play catch-up? I mean, they haven't really been a factor in any World Cup, and we, we want them to be, but they haven't got there. Why is the women's game been able to, in this country, been able to surpass everyone else? Well, I think they started, the U.S. really started it with the college programs, mm. especially in all the club programs in the 70s, right? I mean, you've got hundreds and maybe how many thousand, I don't know, of clubs and, and colleges playing. So you got tons of players and just the sheer volume turned it into something that other countries just didn't have and they didn't emphasize it. Now they're starting to in the last few years, but U.S. was just ahead of the game. Look, we got a population here. we got tons of really good athletes. The women athletes have gotten so much better. And there was some tradition in New England, though. So we did have it. But at the national team level, it was never really organized until the late 80s. And, and again, a lot of it happened in Boston. The first decent-sized crowd started coming out here. And, uh, and it just skyrocketed, I'd say, from 91 on. So the U.S. is still a few years ahead of everybody else. It was light years ahead. Now it's just... It's closing the gap a little bit. Right. Let's talk local angle for the roster. We, I, I mentioned you did a great story in our most recent magazine issue on Christy Muse, a local player, a Massachusetts native who, who will get to play on this roster. Talk about Christy a little bit and her, her journey, her development as a player, and how she was able to land a spot on the national team. Okay, yeah, Christy Muse from Hanson, right? Yeah, she she was... They, really, they've produced a lot of great players. That Whitman-Hanson area, yeah. yeah. That high school, right? right. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of girls Right, on. powerhouse every year. Yep. Yeah, and uh, played college in top level. But, uh, in fact, uh, there's more coming up. But mm-hmm. Christy and uh, Sam Mewis, her, her younger sister, were, were the best. Right. And I think they'll be a tough, they set a, tough, a high bar there. Christy started out with some of the top players with the national team in 2013. She scored her first goal for the U.S. at Gillette stadium in 2013 i think abby wambach maybe lauren cheney scored the other goals it was, <laughs> these are like hall of fame type goals. right so christy was right there with them problem was there was a lot of competition and they had her playing like left back and it really wasn't her position so she kind of got a couple injuries and dropped off the scene meanwhile sam skyrocketed in 2016 she was an alternate on the olympic team then won it in 2019 the younger sister surpassed 
Christie, right. right? So now the positions are reversed. What happened was Christie got healthy. She had a couple of knee ops and stayed with it, right? And they found the right position for her. Vlatko Andonovsky, the coach of the national team, knows Christie from early days. Mm-hmm. And he has her playing in a holding midfield position, and it's perfect for her. She's playing that with the Gotham team and NWSL, too. And she's perfect there. She's a very skilled player, athletic, and tactically really sound. So she's going to have a, a good role in this World Cup. Christy, 32 years old, I believe, Christy, at at this point, and 52 appearances for the national team, seven goals, four assists. What do you think it means when a player's 32 playing in this World Cup could be the last go-round? What do you think her mindset is going into this, and how do you think players approach that when when they've hit that those early 30s years and they're playing in the World Cup like that? Oh, yeah, I think Christy doesn't change too much. That's that's how she yeah. got here. Like, <laughs> anybody else would have got discouraged. I mean, it's a few years. Right. Not, if you're not on the national team and, like, in that cycle and that progress, you're off the picture, you're not going to get back right. really easily. So she just kind of just keeps going, and uh, she's got a, that sort of game face, uh, whatever you call it, and she just, she just goes for it. And I think that's one reason why she's going to do well in this World Cup. I don't see her necessarily starting. I think uh, the coaches said, look, at she's really great. If you put her in for 15 or 20 minutes, you're going to have the best 15 or 20-minute player in the world for those that time, which is kind of all the signs I'm seeing are saying that that's what she's going to be. That's going to be her role. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think she's she's fine with anything. It probably will be her last go-around, but, yeah, she's, she's going for it. That kind of speaks to her as personality-wise, right, just as a grinder and getting there. Like you said, she's not changing anything about her ways at, at 32 years old playing in the World Cup. Yeah, but I see most of the women's players that I see, they, they don't get discouraged. They just <laughs> go for it. I mean, it's like they don't even know that, like, how good they are. Right. They don't really know that, like, this could be the last. They just they just go for it, and they're very coachable in that sense. Most coaches say, yeah, I would love coaching the women because they, they, they take to what you want to do, and they catch on, and they, they just go for it. They don't ask that many questions because they trust the system. Right, right. It probably speaks to why they've been so successful. Now, the other New England native on the roster is, is a well-known name, goalkeeper Alyssa Nair, Connecticut native, 91 appearances for the national team. She's, she's a well-known household name with the U.S. team. Talk about Alyssa and just her, her career here and how she's been able to be a mainstay for the national team. Yeah, another one, uh, Alyssa had to bite her time too, Yeah, right? She had to wait for Hope Solo to right. basically retire. So that was like 10 years that she was like <laughs> sitting around as a backup. Not that she didn't have a, a club career. Actually played for the Boston Breakers mm-hmm. with Christy Mulis and uh, two or three others that are on the national team, by the way. Late lamented and long gone Boston Breakers. But Alyssa Nair had a, a good career. That really got her going. She was 21 years old in 2010 playing for the Breakers, the youngest player on the on the team, or one of the top two youngest, and she was thrust into a starting position. And from that moment on, she showed what she could do. The Breakers rallied. They were like winless and whatever the first two months of the season. Wow. Ended up in the playoffs. She's the goalkeeper. They've got Lauren Chaney. They've got Christine Lilly. they got all these veteran players. And, and who's in goal? Alyssa Nair. <laughs> so she like rose to the occasion, was a really good athlete in Connecticut. And so, yeah, I think... She's another one, stayed with it, right? So by the time she really got a chance was in 2017. Hope Solo retires, and she becomes the starter, Mm. wins the World Cup in 2019. She's getting up there in age, too, but again, she's like 
She's just going strong. Right. 35 years old right now, but still obviously a force in net. She's from Stratford, which is actually where my sister lives. So there, she's obviously, they're excited down there in, in that area. And she's been around for a while and she's, she's going to do great things. Still playing for Chicago Red Stars and the NWSL as well. So are there any other local angles with the roster that you can point to? I know you always have some of these, <laughs> these, these local angles that nobody else knows about, but Frank knows about them. So are there any of these other ones that you're keeping an eye on here? Well, we were talking a little bit about Alana Cook, yeah. who happened to be, she'll be a starting central defender from Stanford University and stuff, born in Worcester. <laughs> but I did talk to her about that. And she says she wasn't li- <laughs> Doesn't there. remember it? Yeah. No, she wasn't there very long. Yeah, yeah. Moved to New Jersey. So really, that's about it. But look, at this team goes back to the, there was a guy named Tony DiCicco that coached the team in 99, mm-hmm. was Alyssa Nair's first coach. Had a goalkeeper camp in Connecticut, close to where she lived. He got her started. He brought her to the breakers, right? Put her in the lineup. So a lot of this, Alex Morgan played for him, a yeah. bunch, of, bunch of people like that. So there's, there, we, had, we had some real close ties to the national team. And they're still inspired by those guys. Right. Megan Rapinoe is going to retire. I saw her after this NWSL season. So that's another name, a household name that everyone's become familiar with. Are there any storylines you're looking at as just a, a reporter and a soccer fan that you're looking at with this team that you're interested to see how things unfold? Well, you want to just see it's, it's team in a bit of transition. So who's going to step forward? I think the, the, we'll see some of the younger players. Look at the coach is going to put out a bunch of younger players. There's going to be some players that haven't had that much experience in the World Cup. Usually the U.S. has right players with like 100 150 caps or like you can't even count them so they still have some of them but rapino for instance is not going to start probably she's not going to but julie Ertz probably not going to play that much so we'll see who steps up naomi germa is a defender like yeah. 22 23. trinity rodman another one trinity that i think people rodman, are looking perfect. at yeah yeah, yeah. Th- she's going to play i think you saw the last warm-up game the u.s had i think that told you a lot and one was that Trinity Rodman stepped in for Alex Morgan in the second half and, and was changed the whole dynamic yeah. of how they played. Yeah, she's only 21 years old. And I think she's one that people are looking at. The last name, obviously, is a name that, that yeah. comes to people's mind. But she's, I think, a young star that might be... Do you feel like she might be in that next wave of... of marquee players on the national landscape on the international landscape yeah absolutely she's gonna i think she'll take over for alex morgan maybe in this tournament from what i saw in that wales game wales is not even a highly ranked opponent but they gave the u.s a really hard time trinity robin did come in in the second half and maybe well he's tired it was like 100 degrees in northern california <laughs> i don't know but but still i mean that's the what you want is to have these Players like that, Sophia Smith is another one. She teamed with her. You got those, Alyssa Thompson up front, young girls that are running. That's that's what the game's about. You need to have two or three players like that up front. Right. Stylistically, how would you say, if there's someone who had never watched the women's national team play in there, they're going to check into this World Cup. Stylistically, how would you describe what they try to do and, and do you feel like it's been consistent over these last few World Cups and maybe the last decade or so that they've played a certain style that's worked for them? Yeah, it's pretty linear. I think it's, it's worked for them. Yeah. I do think Lindsay Horan is somebody to watch in the midfield. From what I've been looking at and, and talking to people is that their style of play is a little bit predictable. Mm. Okay, So I think they might need to do some tactical adjustments. I think that's really on the coach. Vlatko's got to come up with something. I think Wales didn't have that many problems with the U.S., and Wales is not even a – they didn't even qualify. Look, there's 32 teams in the World Cup. If you didn't make it to the World Cup, 
you're probably not that good of a team. I'm still mad about Italy not making it to the men's world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I still, yeah. still haven't gotten over that. You're right, though. Yeah, that was that's a good thing. <laughs> but the women's game, I mean, if you don't make the women's one, right, 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 it, right. Et cetera, the men's tough one. Yeah. So, so I think they're gonna they're gonna have to change their style a little bit. They've got to become a little more unpredictable. Right. I think Lindsey Horan's got to be on the ball and moving forward and creating stuff. That what they do at the U.S. like a lot of teams do. You see. That central midfielder, they come back and get the ball. When they come back and get the ball, they're like a million, they're 70 yards from the goal. Right. They're facing the wrong way. She needs to be going forward. Just launch it to her. So maybe they'll do that earlier in the game rather than later. Right. Is it one of those things, that, like you mentioned, they can be a little too predictable, but they have so much success with what they do. I'm, I'm wondering, do, do, do they get too cute and try to mess with things, or do they just stick with what's worked? I mean, you're right, because if, if you can put a product out there, even if it's predictable, if it can't be stopped, it can't be stopped. But I I will be interested to see, like, if they try to switch things up a little bit. Do you th- I mean, do you think they will at all, or do you think they are what they are and this is what they're going to be? I'd like to see them switch it up a little bit, yeah. and I think they'll do it later in games, but maybe do it earlier in games. The other thing, the outside backs and the wing play of the U.S. is like, it's better than anybody else. Like Crystal Dunn's on the left, mm-hmm. and Emily Fox is on the right now, and she's like, they're flying up the wings. So, <laughs> so like, you can play that kind of linear, predictable style, and good luck stopping those two. Right, right. Within the group, obviously, because group play will be coming in, and we, you mentioned that it's there's not a lot of teams in the tournament, in the entire tournament, that are going to be able to stack up with them talent-wise. But between the Netherlands, Portugal, and Vietnam, who, who do you see as – do you see any – contest in there in the, in that group stage well i haven't really seen netherlands their modern their, you know their, their up-to-date version we saw them through 20 the u.s beat netherlands in 2019 yeah. in the final they're a little bit different now so i don't know maybe they've improved a lot but the odds makers don't think so so right. <laughs> i think it should be fairly easy portugal will just defend and defend and just that's what portugal did against england held them to zero zero so you've got to be able to break down teams like that vietnam actually held germany to 2-1, so Germany's like a powerhouse, and they, they had trouble with Vietnam. So I don't think the U.S. will have trouble with those teams, but they're going to have to come up with something to break down these teams. Like Wales did showed what you can do against the U.S. They, they held them off until Trinity Rodman scored two late goals. And that's a team that's not even in the World Cup. So that's what they're going to face, and let's see if they can figure out how to break teams down. It'll be fun to watch. I mean, we, we all love the World Cup, and it'll be a fun month of soccer. And it's, it's great in the summertime when we have kind of this uh, a little bit of a lull here in, the, in our sports world, and the World Cup will really liven things up. And while you're here, we got to ask you about the Revs. I mean, nobody knows the Revs quite like you. How do you feel they've played? I mean, obviously, Peyton Miller is, is climbing the ranks right now. We had Kurt Alfo come on and talk about him coming through the academy and coming up to the, the Revolution 2. they got a lot of young talent coming through the program right now starting at the academy but how do you feel like the first team has played throughout this mls season and what have you liked from the revs so far yeah look, they've, they've been good they've only lost four games in how many months so right. when a couple of those are like i think the referees association is saying well <laughs> we kind of screwed you guys but, yeah you know, yeah so they could have anyway so weird things goals taken back and this and so they've been extremely resilient because they haven't been at their best the designated players i think started the dps three of them Never started together until the, the last game right. against Atlanta. So you don't have your best players out there. Guys are injured. Dylan Borrero, Henry Kessler, etc. Not to mention Nacho Hill, Tommy McNamara. So Dewan Jones has gone on international So with the U.S. 
So I think they've been they've been good though. I mean, they've shown they can get results. Bruce Arena's master at that stuff. So they got new players coming in like Ian Harks looks mm-hmm. really good. So they've got a chance. I, I don't think they're a team that wins it, but they should get in the playoffs and be a factor. That was going to be my next question. Who, who do you see if you're kind of giving your power rankings for the Eastern Conference? Who's your who's your top dog right now that they're going to have to get past? That's got to be Cincinnati with uh, Pat Noonan, ex Revolution yeah. coaching them, and he's turned into this really great coach. Learned under Bruce Arena with the LA Galaxy and the national team. And uh, Pat was always a good player, but obviously student of the game and just, but able to uh, organize and find a really good team. Look at nobody, Cincinnati, I think won like 12 games in their first three years, right? And last year he won 12 games in his first year with them. Right. And uh, their first place now lost two games all year. So that's, that's the one they got to get past. I think one of the, the great things for the Revs right now, though, is the fact that the U19 Academy team just won another national championship. So, I mean, they, obviously what they're doing at the younger levels with the development is working because they're, those guys are, are now having impacts at, at the professional level, and it's two years in a row, and it's kind of unheard of at MLS Next for a team to, 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 to get two of those in a row. So how important do you think that academy has become for them? I mean, it's obviously that, that's creating a lot of their next-level talent. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it also gives you, really those guys that are coming up are good players, they'll give you some depth. Yeah. Like Bruce throws out some of those guys, and yeah. you need that, right. which the team really didn't have before. Now what they need to do is get some real top players from outside the country or wherever and, right. and kick it up a notch. And then those guys kind of, those are the kind of guys that need to be sort of the, the heart, the building blocks of your team. Mm. They're out there every game at left back, right, whatever. And then you bring in the stars like Carly's Heel and these guys to win you games and Gustavo right. Bo. And so they, that's how you build your teams these days. And so they've got to kind of go do both on both ends. Do you have a thought on Messi coming to Miami next year? Is it as big as we all want it to be and, and hope it is? Or do you think it's we're overblowing what this means? No, no, it's crazy. It's, yeah. His first game is actually going to be this this month in Miami. And and the problem is, like, they don't have a big enough press box to hold. (laughs) It's going to be wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is is the biggest thing since Pele came to the U.S. in the 70s. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's good. I I don't think that Miami is going to be hugely successful because of just messy, but, you know, it's going to be very popular. Yeah. It's it's huge. I mean, it's, it's, uh, when it happened, when that news broke, I remember everyone was, Talking about how massive it is, but then you start, then you start the detractors start saying, "Well, what about his age? He's 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 seen better days, obviously, but he's he can still play though." And I mean, that's still the most the biggest household name in the world, along with Ronaldo. But coming to this country, so how long do you think it is before we can get somebody with that profile or similar profile younger to come to this league? Yeah, that, that's that's it, the. That, I mean, that's that's the, it. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, but that's what they should be doing. You got to find the look at Leo Messi was like 12 when he moved to <laughs> Barcelona, and he was like four foot whatever. He was just like, but they recognized the talent, right. brought him over there, and they said, "All right, this guy's going to be really good. We right. don't know how good, but let's let's go with it." That's what, what teams need to do here. Maybe not 12, but you know, you yeah. find the younger guys, yeah. you find the messy when he's 20. Dylan Borrero that came to the revolution when he was 20, 21, like that. Of course, he got injured, but that's the kind of guys you gotta gotta bring over and find them or in their prime. I think that'll start happening, but not at the to at the uh, uh, at the amount of players that you need to really make a difference. Like right. even with Miami, they're going to bring over a couple other guys that played with Messi and they're older too. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's great stuff, and we're going to actually turn our attention now to our Extra Time segment, where uh, producer David Yaz gives us three mystery questions about the game of soccer, and Frank and I will do our best to to answer these uh, hard-hitting questions. It's the end of regulation, so let's move to Extra Time. Are you sure you're prepared, Matt? And Frank. Frank is. I don't know that I am. All right, well. <laughs> I don't know that I am. <laughs> well, welcome again to Extra Time. As Matt, you pointed out, three mystery questions about the, the sport of soccer. Let's start with one that's actually, there actually is a right or wrong answer to this one. <laughs> I want to take you back to the 2012 Olympic Games. And in a particular game, the U.S. ended up defeating Canada. But the key moment I want to ask you about is when Canada led 3-2 to two in the 78th minute, the referee ruled an infraction on Canada's goalie that turned the tide of the game. The question is, what was the infraction on the part of Canada's goalie? Frank, go ahead. You know the answer? I, I'm only going to guess that Stephanie Lobby was the goalkeeper. I, I, I have no idea what happened. The okay. infraction. <sighs> you have to guess what a goalie can do wrong. Yeah, take I a, mean, take use his hands out of the box. Yeah. This is the women's soccer team, by the way. So it's, uh, use her hands her out. Of, yeah. Use her. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> use her hands out of the box. I don't. Know what other infraction would? And it turned the tide. It it changed the complexion of the game. You said after. Yes, it did. It, an indirect free kick was given after this infraction, which led to a penalty, and the U.S. won on penalty kicks. So no further guesses. The goalie held the ball for longer than oh. six seconds. Oh, good one. Yes. that's a good one. I mean, that's what that's. Nutty. I feel like right. that. that's one. The refs, uh, you're going to call that really? I mean, that happens so a, often, it's ridiculous. It's like a speeding ticket that ends oh up putting you in jail. If forever. you don't see that 30 times a game, you know, like it's not a soccer game. Okay, let's move on to the fun questions then. And Frank, we'll let you go first on this one. So you've both covered soccer and sports for many years. And Frank, I bet you've got this question before, but who is your favorite or most memorable interview? And for this question only, we'll let you... Go outside of soccer if you wish, and you can name more than one if you want. We got no rules here, Frank. What do you think? Okay, I better say Pele. I think because cool. yeah, I think I was unique. I mean, in so many ways, probably he's got to be the best player ever. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I got, okay, I'll say that was my best interview only because just the circumstances surrounding it. You'd go to interview Pele, and you'd like go into a place and decide here to interview Pele. And it was like going in, you got, okay, you go here, like, okay, all you guys are U.S., English. It was like going in to interview the Pope. Like, here's <laughs> the, the guy. Is over. Yeah, it's <laughs> like you go, well, you have to wait in this little area, and then there's other guys talking to him. It's like an audience. When when was this that you got a chance to well, interview Well, I interviewed him right here in Boston. I you actually did? interviewed him in, in my first year as, like, a reporter. I went to the airport in Las Vegas. He was flying in with the Cosmos. I said, I'm going to go there. And like, I was a young, hungry, and, and sure enough, got him off the plane. Wow. Nobody was around. It was just me. And then some, some people recognized him, but they didn't bother him too much. Fans got autographs. I had an exclusive interview, so that was that was memorable. I wrote, like, award-winning quotes. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. it was exclusive with Pele. That was a good one. But, yeah. But it's it basically the Babe Ruth of soccer, right? Yeah, even yeah, more than that, because, yeah. I mean, you could go anywhere in the world, and it's like, like right. we were, okay, so I was thinking of the World Cup, one of the World Cups, I think it was in France in 98, and it was like, we were like, it was the Pope, everybody mm-hmm. wanted to talk to Pele, but then when you got in there with him, it was like, you're just relaxed, 
thing is, he'd do the interviews in English, he'd do them in Spanish, he'd do them in Portuguese, mm. uh, in Italian. So he was like good with everybody, but he was so friendly. He never, he w wasn't bothered by it. Mm. He said, he wasn't bothered. There's a hundred people that want to talk to you. When you get out of here, there's going to be thousands of people bothering you. He didn't bother him. Mm. And like, so I asked him one time, because there was a game that played in Boston where in the 70s when he was playing for the Cosmos, and there was basically a riot on the field. They mm. attacked. Pele, and wow. basically they had to fight off the people and carry him off the field, and he was, wasn't coming back on the field. I asked him about it because there were reports that they took, like he was shirtless after that, mm. and shortsless too. Oh, he says, I said, what about that? He says, they wanted my shorts. He was, <laughs> he, he's laughing about it. It's like wow. you weren't, I didn't ask him if he was scared. He was just laughing. I guess he wasn't scared. <laughs> and that was in New York? That was here. That wow. was at Nickerson Field. I oh, okay. Say. You, yeah. but, but he had that happen in other places, too. I mean, there's m many reports of, like, of games where he ends up leaving in a police car, and that was one of them, you know? <laughs> well, that might have been the start of America finally adopting soccer. <laughs> yeah. If we got our own hooliganism over here, then we yeah. can do it just yeah. like you, Europe. Matt, your answer to this question. Man, that's a tough one. Pele is... You're uh, not going to top that. No, you can't top that. <laughs> unless, uh, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm Digging through my experiences, no, I do not have a, I don't do not have a proper response for that one. But Frank knows if you do this long enough. I mean, a lot of these interviews happen in media scrums, and you don't, yeah. you get your question in, you get a couple in, and it's annoying. You don't really get to dig. I got Dominique Wilkins one time before an NBA playoff game for like yeah. fifteen minutes by myself. He was just, he was there. He's, I think he was doing. He was the TV analyst for the Hawks. It was a playoff series, and he was just there. And I was there at the arena early, and I just went up to him and got him. And he was phenomenal. Just talking about '80s rivalry games of the Celtics, yeah. playing with Jordan, playing against Bird, like things that I like as a basketball kid, like wanted to talk to. Like, I mean, I, I turned it into a story, obviously, for the paper, but it was just conversational 15 minutes with a guy who I grew up like loving watching play and love like mm -hmm. the, the heyday of the NBA for me as a kid late 80s early 90s even though I was young I just loved that and that was probably the most fun I've had because mm -hmm. we it was, it was it was one on one and you you can athletes let their hair down a little bit more if it's just one on one and if they get comfortable talking and he obviously enjoyed talking about those days so that was probably the most fun interview I had because it's it's one of the the few that I had an icon of the game, 15 minutes by myself, no other reporters around. He was a participant, and unfortunately for him, in a matter of speaking, a loser in two of the great duels of, in basketball history. Right. We remember Larry and Dominique in 88 in the playoffs. Celtics ultimately won that game where Larry and Nick were going back and forth. But also in the, one of the most memorable dunk contests, if you remember, was him, he and Jordan. Oh, man. And he was just as spectacular as Jordan. But I remember them cutting to him, the camera cutting to him, and him going, oh, damn, I got to come up with something <laughs> nasty now. I got to come up with something nasty. So uh, excellent answer. Well, if you remember, I mean, he, he really got... It was a bummer for him with those Hawks teams in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have it. He didn't have the 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 weapons to compete with the the Pistons or the Celtics. I mean, but he was. Yeah. If you even look at his stats, I mean, he was phenomenal. Just human, incredible human match. highlight. Yeah. Reel. yeah, yeah. All right. Final question. Matt will let you go first on this one. If we could grant you a Walter Mitty like wish, <laughs> and for one day you could play on any team in the history of soccer at any point Oof. and you can imagine that you are a youthful version of yourself or whatever this is a, this is a dream scenario so what team would you play for and then this could be international local whatever you want. i'd probably want to play with pele on those brazilian <laughs> national teams I mean, like playing with him and just seeing what that was like and being on top of the soccer world aradona would have been fun to play with with argentina but i i would go with playing with pele on on the brazilian national team and just experiencing that 
and and the loyalty from the the country's fans and and being near him it, it, it would have to be similar to playing with Jordan on the Bulls I mean it's just what that what is that like to be to be traveling with that that would type you, of personality uh, would you set up Pele for a goal or would you prefer probably to just, take a feed from I'd probably Pele. just stand around watching him okay. but no I would I would love <laughs> this I would is lo- your dream Matt <laughs> yeah. come on no I'd love him for him to set me up okay. I, I want the I want the glory of the goal but I, I'd like I'd like him to set <laughs> me up yeah good answer Frank your thoughts. Okay, well, I'm going to say, just to be different, 1982 Italy team mm-hmm. won it. Like, kind of came out of nowhere. So that looked like a lot of fun. Not just fun, because those guys were under a ton of pressure. There was, like, nobody believed in these guys. They wouldn't even talk to the reporters. There was only, like, two guys they would talk to because everybody was so down on them. And when an Italian or European press gets down on you, they really get down <laughs> on you. It's like, you're, you, got, you can't do anything right. Do you speak Italian, Frank? Yeah, good you enough. Do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, that, so you'd be right at home. That would have helped, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah. That's a good one, yeah. All right, well, tremendous. You both have successfully navigated extra time, and as a prize, we have a, a, a six-pack of iced tea. Unfortunately, the iced tea is, is, is New England Tea Men brand iced tea. Wow. It's left over from 1980, when the Tea Men actually recorded the lowest attendance in NASL history <laughs> with a game, and this is true, a game in 1980. 254 was the attendance. It's an, Oakland, that's like an Oakland A's baseball game right now. A little <laughs> bit of ten, 100 more fans than the A's get right now. It is. But well done, both of you. Uh, thanks a lot, David and Frank. That was great. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here and shedding some light on the entire soccer world for all of us. That uh, as as only you can with uh, the nuggets of information that you're able to provide. So thanks for being here. Yeah, great, Matt. Good to be with you. Thanks again to Frank Delapa for joining the podcast. I'm Matt Langoni. Thanks for listening. New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast is produced by David Yaz and is a Siemens Media production. You've been listening to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast. Or visit anysoccerjournal.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.